Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. My name is Tom. For those of you I haven't had a chance to meet, I'd love the chance to get to meet you, get to uh, learn your name and find out about you. I have so much to be thankful for. The last time I was here, uh, I was just blown away. And so I didn't know, you know, even how to begin expressing my gratitude to City on a Hill Church. Um, it's uh, insignificant, but I put on this, on this card to the pastors here and to all of you just um, that I was really speechless. And that never happens. Right? I'm never speechless. Um, but I, re- I received your gift with such gratitude in my heart. And the best way I could think to, to explain how I feel is that um, Sunday was obviously special. And that was, that was such a generous gift, a sacrificial gift, and uh, just, just blessed us. But really, and I've told Jackie this uh, a lot of times, when I drive home, I get about an hour drive to decompress after the uh, Sunday service here and just to reflect and think. And you know, on that drive home, uh, every time I minister here at City on a Hill, uh, I, I feel lifted up. I feel encouraged. And so it's not just that you're blessing me, but I really believe, I wonder, you know, we, we don't know uh, of any other path than the one we're on, but I often wonder, like, what would my ministry look like without City on a Hill and this encouragement I get? You all have kept my spirits high and encouraged me, and Jackie will tell you the same thing. You know, it's easy to get down in ministry, but this church has been a light and a source of encouragement, and I get a little bitty taste of what the Apostle Paul felt when he talked to the Philippians, you know, when he talked to these churches he loved, and he's saying, look, it matters, your prayers and your support, and in this case, a financial gift, but beyond that, just your support, it, I really think it blesses my church because it keeps me encouraged, and I hope that I can continue to be an encouragement to you. I, just, I really uh, want to say thanks. That's all. Thank you. Thank you. Love you guys. So, uh, I'm going to be in Genesis. Now, I put this, this graphic is kind of like, uh, I realize it looks like begin at the beginning, Genesis 2. What happened to 1? Those are supposed to be lane markers at the beginning of a race. Whatever, it doesn't matter. You hold those things. So, we, uh, we, 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 I, the idea is there's so much of the New Testament that I... Uh, I began preaching at New Hope on, you know, on Hebrews, and we'd, we'd talk about Galatians. There's so many things in the New Testament, I realized, without a rock-solid foundation of the beginning, of Genesis, we can't really understand. And so I'm going to be dipping into Genesis a little bit, if the Lord wills, as I come back to you <coughs> throughout the rest of the summer and the fall as we enter the polar vortex, Joe. Uh, and... And so today we're going to be in Genesis 25. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Genesis 25. If not, I'll have the verses up here on the screen for you as we walk through them together. Genesis 25. I want to start by giving a little bit of background, not just on Genesis, but really if you're new to the Bible... Do you remember the first time you read the Bible seriously? I don't mean the first time you were taught about the Bible or maybe the first time in Sunday school you heard about the Bible. But do you remember the first time you began to seriously read the scriptures? Maybe it was an old King James that your grandma had that you you cracked open or... Maybe it was some gift someone gave you of a brand new NIV and you begin to read it for yourself. If you're like me, the first time you began to read it seriously, perhaps you were shocked by what was in there and by what wasn't. Most people, when they're given the Bible, they think, well, it's going to be 
you know, I, you know a little bit about the Bible, so it's going to be the Ten Commandments. And, all right, I got this whole book. So this is going to be like the Ten Commandments plus. This is going to be like the Ten Commandments director's cut. You know, you get bonus footage, you get other things in here. But it's going to be basically a how-to book, but instead of self-help, it's going to be God-help. But it's really going to be up to me to follow these rules and this good advice on how to live. And you get there and you start reading, especially if you read in the beginning, you go, this isn't a how-to book. This is a book, this is a book of stories. There's all these stories in here. Yeah, there's some how-to stuff in here. Of course, there's the Ten Commandments and others. But, but there's these book of stories. So then you think, if you're like me, you think, well, okay, so these stories then are going to be like morality tales. In other words, I'm going to read the Bible and I'm going to, I'm going to read uh, about hero after hero of the faith. Priests and prophets and kings. And it's going to be like, see Abraham? Abraham was good. Be like Abraham. And then it's like, see Moses? Moses was faithful. Be like Moses. And it's going to be like, see Josiah, here's Josiah, be like Josiah. And the list is going to go on and on. Then you read it. And you go, well, well yeah, I mean, there was some, some good things Abraham did, but like, what? And you can be like, Noah, I mean, I'm down with Noah, like Russell Crowe and all that, but like, like, <laughs> like there's some crazy stuff his family gets involved in. No kidding. I, a, a guy gets saved later in life in my church, and uh, uh, he uh, did not grow up in the church. And, and I give him a Bible, and he treasured this gift. He took it on the work site. He would call me. He was in construction. He's like, hey, I'm hiding behind a pillar reading some Genesis. He's like, can you explain? Anyway, he finally calls me. He says, yo, Tom, that Bible you gave me is so precious to me. I'm like, I'm glad you're enjoying it. Most of all, I'm glad you're reading it. He says, but I got to ask. Yeah. You sure you gave me the right book? <laughs> like, what do you mean? He goes, I'm reading this. It's like a soap opera. Right? Next week on Abimelech. You know, like, like it's, it's really true, right? What's my point? That's the first thing. When people come to the Bible, that's what I want you to hear. That's what I want you to know. The Bible's got all these characters in here who aren't these great heroes of faith. They're, very, they're deeply flawed. You got all these people. They're polygamous. They're doing all these things that are outside of God's will. They're doing crazy stuff. And if you read this and you go, well, clearly this is, this is, this is prescriptive. No, no. No, the, the Bible is not, in this part, this is not, this is not prescriptive. The Bible's not saying, here, be like these people. It's descriptive. It's going, these are human beings. And you know what? They're human like us. And what we learn when we read Genesis and when we look at these stories, we go, there's no great heroes in here. The only hero in this book, the only one who's heroic is God. God ends up being the hero of this story. God's the one that we end up going, okay. He, this, this story is not about a bunch of advice for us to follow. It's about what only God can do. What only God can enter into this, this human mess and fix and recreate. You read through Genesis and you'll start to see quickly, wow, God gives all this grace. And quite honestly, nobody, I mean nobody in here deserves grace. Congratulations, you've just hit upon the definition of grace. Because right? if you earn grace it's not grace anymore it's now a wage grace can only be freely given same with forgiveness it's a story in many ways of sin anyway let's get to it i i i I pulled out to start with an interesting place genesis 25 because it begins the story of jacob genesis is 50 chapters long and uh, this part here, 25, right here in the middle, is almost like the trailer. This is almost like the preview for the life of Jacob. Jacob is going to get his name changed to Israel, and he's going to have these 12 sons. That's why, 
Many of you know this already, but it doesn't hurt to review. That's why we call them the 12 sons of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel was a dude, right? We think of Israel as a nation. He was a man. He, his name was Jacob, got changed to Israel. So if I call Israel Jacob or Jacob Israel, you'll be able to follow. I'm talking about the 12 tribes of Israel. And the rest of Genesis deals with this guy's life. And so I wanted to talk about him from the beginning. So let's, uh, let's jump in at Genesis 25, and we are going to start in verse 19. These are the family records of Isaac, son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Okay, so some simple genealogy here. And there's plenty of other sermons we can preach, and we'll preach no doubt on Abraham. But for now, suffice to say, Father Abraham was literally the father of Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took as his wife, Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramaean, from Padam Aram. Love these Lord of the Ring names. And, the, and sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord heard his prayer and his wife Rebekah conceived. But the children inside her struggled with each other. Now a little background. For those of you who know the story, you're like, yeah, oh, I haven't been following along. On the, I'm sorry. I was reading it from the paper version. Yeah, but the children inside her struggled with each other. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Now, those of you who know the story, you're like, well, of course, I know where this is going. But for those of you reading for the first time, this verse is very shocking. This is the world's first sonogram. (laughs) And surprise, it's twins. Now, who is... Uh, Rebecca, who, is, uh, who, who are all these people? Uh, suffice to say, the short version, just a little bit of background. Uh, you know that Abraham was called by God to get up, go out. Where am I going? I'll show you. Well, how I know I'll get there? I'll show you, right? Well, what am I going to do? I'll show you. But he believes the Lord, and God credits to him his righteousness. When, uh, when his son Isaac grows up, Isaac begins thinking, maybe I should start dating. Maybe I you know, uh, uh, need a wife, and I'm going to you know, uh, also uh, have a family. And Abraham does exactly what I'm going to do when my children grow up. I'm going to say, relax. I will choose for you your spouse, okay? And I'll find some sweet girl who will not only give my servant something to drink, but all the camels or however, whatever method, you know, uh, happens. And now sure enough, uh, we see that Jacob is, uh, uh, I mean, Isaac and Rebecca uh, prayed to the Lord, becomes pregnant and finds out you're not just going to have a kid, you're going to have two children. She inquires of the Lord and look at this amazing, uh, amazing prophecy. And the Lord said to her, right, this is the sonogram, not just two kids. Look at what he says. Two nations are in your womb. Two people will come from you and be separated. The Lord's letting Rebecca know this is not just surprise, you're going to have twins, which I, I can't imagine. I'm sure that's chaotic enough. But this is, no, we're, I'm starting something. God is doing something here, and it's going to be much bigger than just these two kids. Two people will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. And then this interesting prophecy, the older will serve the younger, which, of course, in the uh, 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 patriarchal society would have been unheard of. It was a very clear pecking order. But sure enough, verse 24, when her time came to give birth, there were indeed twins in her womb. The first one came out red-looking, covered with hair like a fur coat. I don't have any comment on that verse. I just think we should pause and enjoy 
The Bible describing this precious baby as having hair like a fur coat, giving birth to a fox. Like, what happened? And they named him Esau. And Esau, we're going to find out later, over and over, red, okay? He was an outdoorsman. Uh, later, he, he buys some, uh, you'll see, he gets some red stew, and the, his nickname is Edom, the Edomites. These are all nicknames for the same thing. The point they're trying to make is uh, uh, he was a, you know, a, a, a ruddy and, and, and hairy and outdoors. In fact, the Hebrew word for Edom it means redneck. <laughs> so we, I know, I was like, I waited all week. I may have spent it too early, but now after this, his brother came out grasping Esau's heel with his hand. This is remarkable. He's grabbing his heel. So the Bible says he was named Jacob. Now we need a because many of us in here don't speak Hebrew. We need a little background. Why the Bible's like? Well, he grabbed his heel, so obviously had to name him Jacob. To which we're like, like, why does the Bible say, so he was named Jacob? And it's because if, if anybody in here is named Jacob, or you have children or family members named Jacob, you may know this story. But a little bit of etymology about the name Jacob. Um, J- Jacob means heel, or one who grasps the heel. And way, way, way back in the day, that was probably a really good thing. The, 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 the one who grasped the heel referred to the rear guard of the army. So, for example, an army's marching or perhaps even retreating, it's that rear guard is your most valuable soldiers because they're going to protect the army's rear and, and the heel of the army. But later it came to mean one who, yeah, one who grasps the heel. Later came to mean one, it's a figure of speech in Hebrew, one who uh, uh, deceives, one who tricks. We actually have the same expression in English, don't we? Oh, come on, man. No, really, come on. You're, pull, you're, you're grasping my heel, right? What do we say? You're pulling my leg. It's the same thing. It makes no sense when you think about it, right? But it just, who knows why, but uh, fun fact, in German, du nimmst mich auf den Arm, right? What, uh, what does that mean? You're Literally, you're taking me on the arm, right? Which has nothing to do with the sermon, but... <laughs> Silly Germans, I, you know, I, I, but that, I, I, you know, I just throwing it out there, yeah. But it's the same thing, you're taking me on the arm, you're, you're, you're pulling my leg, you're, you're deceiving me. And so Jacob, why is that important? Throughout his life, throughout this saga, remember this is the trailer, this is, this is showing us what we can expect from Jacob. He's an old heel grabber, he's an old, he's an old deceiver. And Isaac was 60 years old when they were born, that's going to be important. These timelines, the Bible doesn't waste a word. I'll show you why that's important in just a moment. Let's, uh, let's, let's, let's fast forward, okay? So that, that's kind of their genealogy. Now, let's fast forward. Verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau became an expert hunter, an outdoorsman. Jacob was a quiet man who stayed at home. Esau's wearing camel. It keeps changing the channel to watch Nass Camel. Right? And Jacob, Jacob wants to watch the cooking channel. I mean, Jacob wants to play chess. You know, he's, he's thoughtful. He's, he, the idea, he's the schemer. And there's athletic Esau, you know, this big redneck. It says, Isaac, interesting, Isaac loved Esau. This is always really helpful. We'll talk about this later uh, when, um, uh, if you want to completely corrupt and poison families. Uh, just have some favoritism. Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game. His appetite was what made him favor one child over another. Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game, but Rebekah 
loved Jacob. And so from the beginning, we see there's going to be trouble brewing in this family. Sure enough, once, and this is where the trouble happens. In, I mean, it, it's so great. The Bible goes from macrocosm to just zoom into this one moment. And this one moment will tell us so much about Jacob and Esau and ourselves. Once, when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field exhausted. Now, uh, 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 commentators think that they must have been you know, out there grazing the livestock or something because you know, at home perhaps the servant would have been cooking. But here Jacob is doing the cooking. Maybe they're out somewhere. Maybe they've been out for days upon end. And Esau comes in exhausted, right? Hairy like a fur coat walking in. You know, he's very, it's, it's very hot <laughs> being fur. And he said to Jacob... Let me eat some of that there red stuff because I'm exhausted. <laughs> right? That's why he's named Edom. Right? Because in Hebrew, the word for red is Edom. Right? It's the same. So again, some of these jokes kind of fall flat because we don't speak the original language, but they would have cracked up at that. Like, hey, give me that red stuff. Oh, yeah. So the, his nickname was Red. So this is a story of Jake and Red. And that's why old Red comes in, all right, give me some of that Red stuff, right? Now, this is your brother, okay? This is the one you've grown up with. Clearly, uh, 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 when, when your brother, who is famished, who's exhausted, he stumbles in, old Red, and he smells this delicious lentils, these red lentils, okay? And I don't know what your favorite food is, right? But this is, this is a red sauce, Joey. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Come on. And it smells so good and garlicky, and he's exhausted, and this is me familia. This is my brother, and so naturally, when brother comes in and he's exhausted, what does brother say? Of course. Here, have seconds, right? Who even thinks of this? Jacob replied, First, sell me your birthright. Now, look, 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 look. look we're going to do a little background into birthright. This is sheer evil. That means Jacob is like 20 chess moves ahead. How evil do you have to be when your brother is starving to be like, I will give you some of this stew. Let's make a contract wherein you surrender your birthright. Who even does that? That's sheer evil. And the reason I have to make such a big deal about this, it's very important, because for the rest of the sermon, we're going to pick on Esau. I mean, we are. We're going to talk about his choice and what he did and how it applies to us. But if you leave here and you go, so the moral of that story is don't be like Esau. Instead, be a manipulative, deceptive brother hater. Like, nobody looks good. Romans 3 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The only hero in this story is God. Okay? So here Jacob, with this wickedness, says, first sell me your birthright. Okay? Now, a little bit of background about birthright. Again, if this is review, it won't hurt you. Back in the day, uh, we think of our own successes, our own, oh, you know, uh, 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 make enough money for the individual and, and, and status for the individual. Back then, it was very different. It was for the family. You wouldn't want status for the individual. You would want to gain status for your family, well, that, the, that the lineage would be preserved and protected. And so you sort of put all your eggs in one basket, or, or a majority of your eggs in one basket. You really favor the oldest son. Not just out of favoritism, everybody did that. Why? Because it's up to you. We're giving you all these extra resources and stuff because it's up to you to keep our family name going. It's up to you to keep our lineage strong. Don't lose our family's place in society. 
go, Esau, do this. And so what they would do is they would, uh, however many sons you had, you would divide your whole inheritance. When dad dies, you divide your whole inheritance into X number of sons plus one. Let me explain. If a man had 12 sons, he wouldn't divide his inheritance 12 ways. He would divide it 13. Give all 12, and then the firstborn gets double. So everybody gets, all 12 sons get one-thirteenth of the inheritance, and the oldest son gets two-thirteenths. You with me? Like I was told there'd be no math at church today. Yeah. <laughs> so, if your dad, if you're poor, this really doesn't matter that much. Because if, if all your dad owns is 13 lambs, big deal. You each get a lamb, you know, your older brother got two lambs, you know, whatever. But if you were very, very wealthy, as their family would have been, and there are two sons, can you imagine how Jacob felt. Can you imagine the tension knowing that you're each going to get one third? Oh, except you, Esau, you're going to get two thirds. Now, two thirds of a ton of wealth will feel a lot different than he got an extra lamb. Two thirds of the wealth, only one third. And meanwhile, Jacob's thing is, I, I was, I would, I would be so much better as the firstborn. I even tried to grab his heel. Like I'm thirty. It's not like, well, of course, he's ten years older. He's been like a father to me my whole life. He's my twin. It's not just, it's not fair, it's not right, his whole life. And on top of that, I've never been able to earn your approval, Dad. It doesn't take a psychologist, right, to know that here's this handsome athlete that the father loves, and here's a son who can never seem to get his father's approval. It's going to show up the rest of his life. He's going to work seven years because he's gonna, if I could just get Rachel, that's the thing. If I could just get a land, if I could just get my fam over and over again. The poor kid has never had father's approval, Meanwhile, his older brother is so athletic. His older brother's like, what, you can't dunk a basketball? I can dunk a sheep. Like, I'm the man. Come on, right? Of course, what does he do? He takes all that. He internalizes it. He, he, he manipulates. He becomes a manipulative person. This doesn't take a psychologist's uh, degree to see this, right? And right here, that's what he's doing with this wickedness, with this hurt. First, sell me your birthright. That would be painful enough. My point is simple. Uh, uh, the financial piece I just went over, right? But it's more than that. Look, look what happens. Jacob replies, sell me your birthright. And Esau says, look, I'm a little overdramatic, but it's, I'm about to die. So what good is a birthright to me? Huh? You're going to get it all anyway because I'm going to die if I don't get this stew. Jacob said, swear to me first. Why did he say that? It's an oral culture. He would have had him sign a contract, but there wasn't a written culture. And so the way they made an ironclad contract was simple. Swear to me. These were done in oral ways. Swear to me first. And so he swore to Jacob and sold his birthright to him. Then Jacob gave bread and lentil stew to Esau. He ate, drank, got up, and went away. And the Bible says, so Esau despised his birthright. I'll say it again. The rest of the sermon, we're going to talk about how tragic that was. Uh, but don't leave here and go, so the, so the hero of the story is Jacob. Uh, the, the only hero is God. In any family, to despise your birthright, we don't really have birthright system today, I don't think, but in any family, doesn't it hurt when in any family, if you despise the, way the family's ways? You know, if I grow up and I say, hey, mom, dad, thanks for everything. Basically, I don't want to be a Richter. I don't, I, don't, I don't like anything you stand for. I'm going to live the opposite of what you stand for. That would hurt. Wouldn't it hurt? Um, but this is no ordinary family. 
Do you remember those details about he was 60 years old and this guy happened when he was 30 and all that stuff? Here's why that's so important. If you do the math, if you do the math, Abraham, you know how we say Father Abraham? Jacob and Esau's grandpa was Abraham, okay? Their grandfather was Abraham. You know when he died? He died when the twin boys were 15 years old. That means they had 15 years of camping with Grandpa Abraham. 15 years of fishing. 15 years going out with Grandpa, going out for breakfast on Saturday morning. Everybody with me? 15 years. My grandpa died when I was a teenager, 16, 17 years old, something like that. And yeah, I remember, I, I, I got so much from Grandpa in just those few years. My grandpa loved to go camping, loved to go camping. Grandpa would take me camping, we'd go fishing, we'd look up at the stars. He loved the stars, we'd all talk about the stars. Let me tell you something. That's my grandpa. What if your grandpa was Abraham? And he said to you one day, Jake, Red, let's go camping. Go, Gramps, right? You're walking up the mountain. Jacob looks at Abraham like, we going up this mountain. Like, we're just camping, right? Because, you know, Dad still talks about that. Uh, I'm, 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 you're just camping, right? We're just camping? I mean, we, this is like, like bring your own sacrifice, right? Like, I, I'm, I'm asking. <laughs> Yeah, 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 it's just camping. Just go, okay, all right, all right. So they make it up on the mountain. Now, let me tell you, when my, when, someone will explain that to you afterward if you didn't, if you, if you feel left out, just read the Bible. Uh, the, uh, uh, actually, we'll probably preach on that. Anywho, they make, they make their way up, and uh, let me tell you, when my grandpa looked up at the stars, it was things like, look how beautiful, look how good God is, okay? Let me ask you something. When you're a teenager, and your grandpa is Abraham, and he takes you up in the dark of night. There's no ambient light. There's no electric uh, lights going on anywhere. Dark of night. The stars must have looked like, I mean, really, it must have looked milky with the, all the stars. And he looks up at him. That's a whole different story from Grandpa. And Grandpa looks at those boys and says, Jake, yeah, Gramps, red, yeah, look at those stars. Did I ever tell you? Yeah, like a million times. Well, here, I'm going to tell you again. I will never forget the day. And boys, you must never forget the day. That when I, I, my whole life, I looked up at the stars. I was a moon worshiper over in the Chaldees, and I always thought of the stars and gods, and I could never know them. I could never forget what they wanted. I'll never forget the day when the living, true God, Yahweh, brought me out here. And your grandma, you, your grandma, no kidding, she was, not, she was 90 years old, and I was 99. We know, Grandpa, we love this story. And he took me out there, and he said, and we didn't have any children, right? We didn't have your dad yet. And he went out there, and he said, count these stars. And I said, I can't count them. He said, that's right. And I'm going to make your descendants as many as the stars in the sky. And through you, I'm going to bless the nations. I'll never forget that night. And when I looked up at there, and I realized there's no way I could ever count those stars, I, I felt the presence of God. I took a deep breath, and I said a silent, Amen. I believed him. And you know what he did? Yes, Grandpa, we know what he did. We're here, aren't we? That's right. He made your grandma pregnant at 90 years old. Because God always does what he says he does. Am I right? You listen to me? You listen. Esau, get back over here. <laughs> you listen to me? Yeah. That's his heritage. Everybody understand what I'm getting at? Jacob and Esau, did, when it says he despised his birthright, it's not the financial piece. He turned his back on the word of God. 
He turned his back on what grandpa had been telling him, what no doubt his dad had been telling him for years and years. And he turned his back on the word of God. Let me ask you a question. Who would do that? It is financially stupid to sell what is long-term tremendous value for a little short-term appetite. It is financially stupid. It is spiritually foolish. It is unconscionable. It's unthinkable. I don't care how yummy that stew was in the moment. Who would sacrifice? Why would anyone sacrifice what God is doing in the big picture for a little bit of disobedience to follow an appetite? You tell me, what human would be so foolish as to forsake what God is doing to follow your own little appetite man i wish this story was about other people (laughs) it's about you and me isn't it it's what we've done haven't we despised our birthright listen forsaking sin is always forsaking future joy for present gratification i wrote that down because i thought it was so important i wanted you to hear it clearly Sin is always forsaking future joy, what could be yours, right? Future joy for present gratification. What Esau did is so instructive because we're tempted the same way to sell this birthright that could be ours for an immediate gratification of an appetite. How many examples could we think of? Limitless. We cannot see, for example, the, the lasting value of a heart of generosity, but greed pays off right now. Hmm? We can't feel you know, the, 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 the peace that comes from a right relationship, but exploding in anger always feels good right now. And we trade the peace of a family that could be ours for the emotional outburst because we feel like we're not being heard and we, we get it out there. and Yeah, now we feel good, right? Every student in here knows this. There is a joy available to you this fall, students. When you have a term paper and you get to work on that and you, you, you work hard early in the week, long before it's due, there's a joy that can be yours as you're resting peacefully the night before it's due. Perhaps you even go out and see a movie to reward yourself because you're done proofreading your paper, right? And no one does that. Why? Because procrastination always pays off now. You have to wait forever to get the joy of hard work, but procrastination, you can have that joy now. Procrastination is always fun now, right? Of course, I want a life that's healthy and my, my body to be fit, but the extra piece of pie or whatever pays off now. Of course, I want a relationship that's untainted, right? Of course, I want a life of purity and holiness. But lust, these things are immediate gratification. Pornography is just that. It's forsaking what could be yours, a great intimacy of committed marriage. Instead, for what? For the immediate gratification. Gossip pays off now. Greed is for now. Sin means always forsaking future joy for present gratification. And I just want to riff a little bit on sin. So if you're a note taker, good luck. Uh, Just maybe write, sin is foolish. How about this one? Sin is foolish. What I mean is, um, on a strictly rational, transactional basis, there's some bankers in here, there's some math people in here, what he did was foolish. This would be like like, uh, 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 selling a, hey, I'm starving, give me that Happy Meal. Okay, give me the deed to your uh, Brooklyn brownstone townhouse. 
Well, what good's that townhouse in Brooklyn if I'm going to die? Give me the happy meal, right? Just on a transactional basis, it's like, if you're going to do that, sell the townhouse and buy lots of happy meals, like on a strictly rational basis, right? Right? Do you ever think heaven kind of looks at sin in our lives and goes, guys, on a, on a strictly transactional basis, you do realize this is foolish, right? Like, you do realize this will destroy you. Like, there's all these moral elements and stuff, and of course, we got to talk about that. We're in church, and I'm a preacher, and yeah, we, yes, but on a strictly, like, what you're doing is foolish, and, and it, I wonder sometimes the angels are just scratching their head going, I, 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 don't, I don't get it, right? Like, this is, this, is, this is foolish. As you mature in Christ, as I mature in Christ, one of the things I want, I want sin to begin looking as ridiculous as it is in reality. I've got to stop thinking of sin as this really good and fun thing that God is keeping me from, right? And I've got to start seeing sin as a cancer, as the prison from which I've been freed, and I don't want to go back there. We talk all the time about the cost of discipleship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this book, Cost of Discipleship. But we also need to ponder the cost of non-discipleship. The tremendous cost. The second thing I'm just riffing, sin doesn't actually solve anything. Listen carefully. The sin that you commit, your sin will never actually solve what you're thinking the sin will solve. Okay? So you want the immediate gratification? You go and do the sin? You are, that has never solved anything. God did not, uh, 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 God is not mocked. You're not going to go and do that sin and go, well, I did the sin because I was really trying to meet this need. What you'll discover is the sin didn't meet the need, okay? Did anybody ever lie and go, now that lie fixed everything. That was a great choice, right? No. Did anybody ever uh, uh, lust or was greedy or any of these things and go, now that really scratched that itch. I'm glad I never struggled with that again, okay? Sin doesn't make sense because it doesn't actually solve the problem you need solved. I base my case scripturally on verse 30, and I will admit to you my case may be a little flimsy, but I offer it. Look carefully at verse 30. He said to Jacob, it's going to be a little flimsy, let me eat some of that red stuff, okay? Let me eat. Why? Because I'm starving. No. Let me eat some of that red stuff. My man sells his birthright because I'm really hungry. No, what's it say? Let me eat some of that red stuff because I'm exhausted. It's funny. That word means weary. It means exhausted. I went back to try to make the flimsy case a little less flimsy. I went back and looked. In Hebrew, it occasionally means thirsty. I think the idea is it means overall exhausted, overall famished, but it really means weary. In fact, if you have a New American Standard Bible, the NASB, it will say, I'm famished, footnote, in the bottom. You look in the footnote, literally weary. Because even they get it. It's, it's, or something like that. Yeah. Why? Because the word means exhausted. My man is tired. So he comes in exhausted and he's like, I can't wait to get a bunch of food to fix my tired problem. Bro, you don't need lentils. You need a nap. You see what I'm getting at? That may be a little flimsy. I may be drawing too much out of that. But the point I'm trying to make is sin is never going to solve the problem that you think it's going to solve. So what? He's exhausted, and after he eats all this food, what's he going to do? He's still going to be exhausted. Let that be instructive to all of us. You are looking for sin to fulfill something in your heart. After you sin, it's the, the thing is still going to be there unsolved. 
You've got these stresses in your life. And so an alcoholic reaches for that bottle, reaches for that comfort, whether it's, it's, it's food or it's sex or it's power or whatever. You reach for that substance to do what? To deal, to numb the pain. And for a little while it works. But what hasn't changed? The stresses in your life. It has not solved it. Sin will never solve. My man's tired. And he, no amount of food will correct tiredness. It doesn't work. Another thing you could write down, sin doesn't play fair. Sin never plays fair. A couple ways. I'll tell you this. Temptation, okay. Just tem- temptation never, seems, never comes when you're at your best. Am I right? Like, does Satan wait until you are, like, sitting at, you know, the best time of day for you, and you're there, and temptation, Satan's like, I'm going to spring a temptation on this guy. It's 10 a.m. You've had a healthy and nutritious breakfast of smoothies and tree bark or whatever healthy eating is. The night before, you got nine hours of rest. You've just received a phone call from your accountability partner who has encouraged you with scriptures from the Bible. Is that the moment that Satan like, I'm going to go after him? No, because you would brush it off. No, when does he come after you? One of my heroes in the faith is a minister named Taylor Field. He still ministers at Graffiti Church on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Taylor always has the halt theory. He says, temptation comes, you need to halt. Halt. Hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. That's when temptation comes. That's when it strikes. You're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Why? Because he wants to kick you when you're down. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired, which I know I just described the L-I-double-R on like Friday at 5.30. That's like the whole train. That's why everybody's so mean. We're just, we just, you know. But the halt theory... Uh, uh, that's what Esau says. He says, look, I'm about to die. He does this. I'm about to die. Halt, man. Sometimes we th- I, I think maybe we overthink that. If you're not caring for yourself, it, it, sometimes these things don't have deep uh, spiritual roots. You know, oh, I'm so uh, angry, and I, what I really need is more. Pr-. Well, you, you need a Snickers, perhaps. You know, you... <laughs> on, a ser- on a more serious note, when, let me ask you, when is the time in your life you're most likely to avoid coming to church. Is it not the very time you need church the most? That's when Satan is going to tempt you not to be in the house of the Lord, when you need it the most. Why? Because if he separates you from the herd. You ever watch those nature shows? You know, you know how all the gazelles stay together? What does the, roaring, the roaming lion do? He waits till one gets away from the herd. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired, away from community and goes after it. And the moral of the story is you come to church or you'll be eaten by a lion. <laughs> That's a little intense. But you, <laughs> it's true, right? It's the time we're most tempted to stay away. The other thing I want to say about uh, how sin doesn't play fair is that sin is always, I'll say always, footnote, always aided by the sins of others. Look, here's what I mean. If you wanted to, Romans 3 says we want to, by the way. If you wanted to, you could justify the reasons for your own sinfulness forever. I've quoted Taylor Field once today. I'll quote him a second time. He says, the definition of infinity is the links a human will go to justify their own sinfulness. You could justify. You have so many reasons for your sin, right? Right? That's why a lot of times we apologize. We're not even apologizing. We're like, well, I'm sorry. But you've got to understand that this is. Well, then don't say you're sorry. You obviously had a lot of reasons. We justify our sinfulness over and over again. The leading justification is I was sinful but you got to understand, I hurt you, but you got to understand, look what he did. Look what she did. God, I was angry, yes, but you've seen my family, right? Yes, God, I lashed out at them, but what about them? What about them? Listen to me. 
Sin is always aided by the sin of another. Always. Esau sinned, yes. But he wouldn't have sinned if Jacob hadn't been such a punk. Right? If Jacob hadn't been so, and, and on top of that, what about their family situation? It's a train wreck. You got Jacob, uh, you got the Isaac and Rebecca playing favorites. Your sin is always going to be aided by the sin of another. That's not an excuse. The reason I said footnote is somebody came up to me at New Hope one time and was like, sin is always helped by the sin of another. They were like, what about Adam and Eve? I was like, Satan. They were like, what about Lucifer? I was like, good point. Almost always. Sin will always leave you wanting more later. Esau ate. He was hungry again. Sin. Oh, one, one last. Two, okay. Almost one last. Look at this one. Sin, sin rarely has immediate consequences. And that means we think we get away with sin. Now watch. What happened when Esau did this terrible thing? He despised his birthright. I mean, can you imagine? Turned his back on the word of God, did this thing, right? What happened? God struck him down with lightning. No. God smote him. No. He immediately felt the weight of his sin. No, here's what happens. He ate, drank, got up, and went away. And so he did that thinking, well, maybe God can be mocked. Yeah, maybe there are no consequences for our sin. Ate, drank, got up, and went away. And so too we. But we find out in the end, sin, and this is the last one, sin is hopelessly irreversible. Hebrews chapter 12 talks to people who are tempted to fall away, they're tempted to give up on the faith and all that stuff, Um, people who are uh, being irreverent. Look at what it says. Of all the examples in the world, Hebrews chapter 12, of all the things they could have pointed to, I want you to see this, that sin is hopelessly irreversible. Sin is un doable. If you do a sin or you fail to do the right thing, you can't go back and undo that. Look at what Hebrews 12 says. Of all the things, he says, he's warning the people. He's saying, listen, listen, hang in there, guys. I know you're being persecuted, but make sure that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person. And of all the people in the whole Bible they could have pointed to, that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau, who sold his birthright in exchange for one meal. For you know That later, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected because he didn't find any opportunity for repentance, though he sought it with tears. No amount of fasting. That's a Muslim teaching, you know, that enough good deeds could undo your sin, but it's not a Christian teaching. It's not in the Bible. No amount of of guilt or sorrow. If uh, If you could cry forever, it wouldn't undo the curse of sin. There's an old hymn Right, uh, Rock of Ages, and it says this, Could my tears forever flow? In other words, if I, if, I, if I could be sad over my sins forever, could my tears forever flow? Could my grief no respite know? In other words, if, if I could be sad and grieving over my sin forever, he said, these for sin could not atone. These for sin could not atone. So uh, what I'm leaving you with is that sin is forever and hopelessly impossible to undo sin is forever impossible to undo but we have a god who can do the impossible we have sold our birthright haven't we all of us we had a chance to be god's image bearers 
We had a chance to be his, 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 his viceroys, his ambassadors on this earth. That was supposed to be ours. Adam and Eve did what we all do. We forsook the, we, we gave up the good that God intended for us in the future for the temporary appetite of sin. We've all done it. But there was one. God made a way when there was no way. You know, your lust, you're not going to be able to fix that. Your greed, you're not going to be able to fix that. You've already tried. Your anger, you're not going to be able to fix that. Those bad things you've done, you can't resurrect anything. But God can. And when God came in Jesus Christ, he lived a life of sinless perfection. And what was happening was his perfect obedience can be credited to you as belonging to you. And he can empower you with his Holy Spirit. His death on the cross paid that ransom. And on the third day, he rose again. What was happening was simple. We have given up our birthright. We've given up what we had a right to. And Jesus came. Watch this. Jesus willingly gave up all that was his so that you could be written back into the story of God. I mean, Esau did it. He was tricked, and he was aided by the sin of another. Jesus took all that sin willingly on the cross. He had a birthright. He was the only begotten son of God, and he gave up that birthright. He lost the love of God on the Father on the cross. He, he lost the, the presence of God and feeling that closeness with God. Why? So that you could be written back in. He gave up his birthright willingly for you and for me. And that love is to stir us. See, that, that, that's my point, isn't it? None of these sermons in Genesis. You're not going to hear a sermon and go, well, that was a good morality tale. I will try not to go and sin this week. That's, I, I hope you don't sin this week. But the real point is that, wow, reading Genesis, I realize I've done those things. I've done every one of those things. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. I've lashed out. I've, I've been aided by the sin of another, and I've used that as justification. I've, I've sold what could be mine in the long term for the short term. I'm guilty of that. Hear the good news of the gospel in Genesis. Even in Genesis, God has not forsaken you. And that he can do the impossible in your life. Forgive your sins and wash you whiter than snow. And each week, we're going to, I mean, every time Genesis, it's going to come back to that good news. It's not good advice. You understand? It's good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you can do the impossible. You can resurrect the dead things in our life that we ourselves have, by our own choices, messed up. We've betrayed, forsaken you, been faithless to you. But God, what you've done for us puts new life in us, moves us, and stirs us. And thank you, Jesus, that you gave up what was rightfully yours. You gave up your birthright willingly. No one tricked you into the cross. You came. The true, our true older brother who freely gave. You didn't withhold anything from us. And you rose again on the third day to show that, God, you can do the impossible. And you can resurrect sinful, dead in our trespass type humans and bring them to eternal life. We give you praise. We thank you for the good news that started not in the New Testament. We thank you for the gospel that started on page one of the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So it makes total sense to turn our attention to the Lord's table, doesn't it? I mean, this is what it's about. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he gave us this reminder. The gospel that I've been preaching to you, this is all this is. It's a reminder to remember. This is for believers, for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. For those who are still seeker, maybe you're you're not there yet. 
No one will uh, think anything about you sitting there and praying and reflecting. The reason this is a meal for believers is it makes sense. We're looking back. We're remembering what King Jesus has done for us. He took the bread, and after he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the cup of the new covenant. Written, it's, it's, it's my blood. It represents my blood. Can you imagine? Spilled for you. Do this in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, the Bible says you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's enter in a time of reflection on the good news of the gospel. Allow it to stir our hearts. Allow us to meditate on this good news. The ushers will they'll be walking around preparing things and getting us ready to come to the table. So we'll just follow their good lead. Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.